Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. The annual veto session of the Missouri legislature is less than one week away. While Governor Mike Parson only vetoed one bill, he also vetoed over $500 million in funding from the latest state budget. And it's those budget vetoes that could lead to possible attempts to overturn them. On this episode of Politically Speaking, House Representative Paula Brown joins the show for the first time to talk about her expectations for veto session. The St. Louis County Democrat also spoke on what responsibility the federal government has concerning nuclear waste contamination, as well as what education education issues she expects to see come up again during the 2024 session. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. My promise to St. Louis was that I would do the absolute most for each and every person, starting with those who have the very least. What I wanted to do was look and see what other states are doing. We have to be willing to change those laws that they are balanced and they affect everybody equal. As somebody that grew up in the St. Louis area, North St. Louis County, I didn't know any lawyers growing up. We gotta find long-term solutions to make government better, but also to be able to provide services to people. I don't wanna leave that federal money that we've been leaving all these years on the table. We need to be spending this money to take care of Missourians. I thought we accomplished a lot this year, but a lot more needs to be done. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, State House and Politics reporter Sarah Kellogg. Joining me via Zoom in the St. Louis office, he is St. Louis Public Radio's political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. And our guest today, joining Jason, she represents the 87th district in the Missouri House, Paula Brown. Welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you on. Since this is your first time on Politically Speaking, I would love for you to tell our listeners, you know, what your district is, who you represent. Well, thanks, Sarah. I represent um, District 87, which encompasses Maryland Heights and a big chunk of Chesterfield. Uh, very different from the district that I represented uh, two years ago. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that. How did redistricting change, you know, your district? I think I just stole Jason's question. <laughs> so when I was in District 70, I represented all uh, a big chunk of Bridgeton, Maryland Heights, Creve Chesterfield, and St. Charles. Now I have all of Maryland Heights, and uh, I kept my Chesterfield area. In which, by the way, we, we talked about this before the show. She does represent the house that my grandparents owned in Chesterfield, where my dad and his siblings lived. So I, I'm sure that they're all surprised that a Democrat is representing Chesterfield, but the times, they, are, they have a change. They have. <laughs> and because this is your first time on the show, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you did before you got into Missouri politics. Okay. I was an educator with the Hazelwood School District for 31 years, um, a classroom teacher, middle school librarian, and the Hazelwood NEA president for eight years. And then I moved into administration with professional development and human resources. When you ran in 2018, you lived in one of, if not the most competitive house districts in the state. Did you have any misgivings about running in such a challenging race compared to some of your other Democratic colleagues? Um, I'm not 
sure I was smart enough to know to be nervous <laughs> when I first ran. Um, it was an interesting story. Margo McNeil and Bill Otto met with me and said, hey, you said you always wanted to run for office. We have this opening. Are you interested? And they got a flat no from me. Um, wasn't until Claire McCaskill called that I was like, okay, um, I'll consider this. And it was my husband who actually, in the end, said, you always wanted to be part of the solution. Are you still there? And I was like, okay. So we drove to Jeff City and I signed up to run. Do you, th- do you think the fact that you had retired as a teacher when you made this decision, correct? Yes. I think that it's a more difficult ask for somebody who is not super wealthy and has what I would classify as a middle-class job to take a significant pay cut and be in Jefferson City four or five months out of the year. And I guess in your case, I don't think you could remain a teacher and be in the legislature. That is true. So, per so, constitution. So how did I guess that also maybe tipped you in the direction of running as well. Is that fair to say? Um, I would answer that by saying I could not have done it what if I was still teaching. If I had not retired, I could not afford to take that pay cut. So you ended up defeating an incumbent. I did. Uh, Mark Matheson, mm-hmm. um, who interestingly now is serving with you he because is. we've talked about redistricting. He moved to St. Charles County. He ran in a district that is pretty Republican. So what is it like serving with somebody who you ran against? I know it's not unheard of in the Missouri legislature, but it is somewhat unusual. Uh yeah, it is somewhat unusual. Um, it was a little awkward for like the first 15 minutes, and then it was fine. Uh, Mark is a good guy. He's doing some good work, and I actually enjoy working with him. So as Sarah alluded to, when you ran in for the first time, your district was super, super, super competitive. Um, it is not as competitive after redistricting. I'm not saying it's like 90-10, but it's definitely a different district. Does that change how you legislate? Like, were you having to be more careful because you didn't want to offend, like, the Republicans in your district? Or are you basically the same legislator that you were before redistricting? I'm still the same legislator. I always try to reach out to folks and see what they think. And my constituents have my cell phone number. They have my email address. They reach out all the time. I meet with them. And I tried to represent what they have told me they want. Let's move on to your work as a legislator. You are the ranking member of two very intriguing committees, one overseeing elementary and secondary education and the other dealing with natural resources and conservation. The education committee makes sense since you are a former teacher, but what got you engaged in the other committee? So my engagement in conservation is I'm one of those ticky little environmentalists and um, my kids are environmentalists. We I have a, my oldest son would love to save the world from all the climate change. And, and so I I would say to you, he got me really involved in that, but clean water and clean air are of particular interest to me. So I just asked if I could be on, and then I got highly involved in several things um, through that committee. You know, something that's kind of been a topic lately, if there should be any state legal action over nuclear waste contamination. After the investigative report that came out in July, do you think that that would be a worthwhile action? It would. It would absolutely be a worthwhile action. Here's the thing. That report only said what we've all known. 
All it did was confirm. And that is not a happy confirmation, right? We would all have loved to have been wrong on that. But we weren't. And I would, I will join with colleagues in asking our attorney general to sue the Department of Energy. I believe that's the only direction we can go to get the compensation and the cleanup that is necessary to help those who've survived it or unfortunately not survived it, help their families, but also to protect the citizens that are here now. Do you think that taking legal action could be difficult because of the general concept that they are immune from litigation or or the company's responsible since many don't exist anymore as they did when the contamination occurred? Of course, it will be challenging. However, the Department of Energy needs to step up and own their nonsense. Because we talked about this with Representative Doug Clemens, and we asked him also if the whole concept of federal government having immunity would make it difficult. I think that he inferred that maybe the federal government would just voluntarily make a settlement here because, I mean, you read that investigation, like, the evidence is pretty damning that they did things that are not good. Um, But I don't know. I could also see the federal government not wanting to admit fault just because they just don't want to. Like, what's kind of your – I know I'm asking you to predict – what is in the mind of the Department of Energy, but from your previous answer, you don't seem to have a very good opinion of them. So do you think that they may not voluntarily provide restitution uh, to the region? I'll answer that by saying I'd be shocked if they voluntarily provided um, anything at this point. Uh, We have a record of decision for Westlake Landfill, and the company who owns that landfill has is into the millions on trying to protect citizens. And we need the Department of Energy to step up and sign that record of decision so that they'll pay. And they haven't done that yet. So you're talking about Republic Services, which uh, has the unfortunate (laughs) uh, uh, duty of owning that landfill, which, by the way, we talked about this before the show. Republic Services did not own that landfill when nuclear waste was dumped into it, but they are responsible for it, unfortunately, for them. Right. There was a right, there was a, an agreement in place to cap it when they bought it, and they so they thought all of this work was done, and then um, some other testing, other things came about, opened back the record, and now there's a cleanup uh, there. In the meantime, Republic Services has worked diligently to keep the citizens as safe as possible for a mess that they did not create. One of the interesting things about this issue is you're seeing Democrats find agreement with Republican Senator Josh Hawley that people within the St. Louis region should be compensated for their sickness because of radioactive waste exposure. What do you think of Hawley's measure? And I I assume that you are one of the Democrats that agrees with what he's doing. Well, I think it's a great amendment. And I think providing uh, resources and compensation for people who have become ill because of this toxic waste is is imperative. I don't know of anyone who disagrees with the direction this is going. This is not a partisan issue. This is a human issue, and we need to do everything we can to help those folks. So let's move on to education. What are some big educational issues that you expect to be top of mind when the legislature returns in 2024? 
So I think you're going to see two things. You're going to see open enrollment come back um, to the floor. I'm not sure if it'll be in the exact form that it went through last year, but you are certainly going to see that. That will be number one on the uh, on the docket. The second one is, and I'm hoping that I've generated enough interest, is my bill to change the MAP test and uh, accreditation and how we do that in the state of Missouri. I will talk about both of those. Let's start with open enrollment. It did, you know, it was something that passed the House last year. Inevitably, it died in the Senate. I guess, if you want to explain to our listeners who maybe don't know what is open enrollment and kind of what this bill seeks to do and your thoughts on it. So open enrollment seeks to give parents a choice in for their students to go to neighboring school districts, public school districts, with like an application process. So let me start at the top. You can You can choose a district around you. There is some transportation built into that. It is a voluntary thing to get into right now. There is some funding questions about it that I'm not quite sure where we are with that yet. And, you know, we split mainly on party lines on this. However, there are some Republicans that aren't necessarily as happy with it as the sponsor would like them to be. I think it passed with 83 votes last year. Why do you think it's partisan and why do you think there are some Republicans that are just not quite willing to vote for it and don't want to vote for it? So one of the biggest controversies that I've heard from or between Republican and Republican and conversation in the in the hearings is that they're worried that it's going to condense some school districts. So you will see some school districts sort of disappear, right? And because we have school districts of 78 kids out there, if they think that their neighboring school has better programming or better sports or whatever the case is, then you could see some folks leave to the point where it's not fiscally responsible to keep a school district open. That is their big concern. And nobody wants to see their school district disappear. I get that completely. Democrats believe that this is just one more way to let charter schools expand, vouchers, and all the things that we don't support. I want to talk about the other bill that you mentioned would be kind of a topic. So talk about your legislation that you're hoping to advance in 2024. We're all familiar with the MAP test. And I know of no one who thinks it's the great, the greatest thing since sliced bread. Most people don't like it. But my issue is it doesn't tell us what we really need for it to tell us. As an educator, what I want to know is where did Tommy go from point A, the first assessment I give him in class, to the end point? How much did he grow? That's what assessment should tell us. Um, the MAP test doesn't do that. It compares this year's third graders to last year's third graders. What does that tell us? I, I'm not sure that that is an important number at all. The other thing is we don't typically get uh, those results back until... October, they're released to the teachers late October, early November sometimes. How does that, how do we impact instruction when we don't know where our kiddos are until then? We have months under our belt. So my bill says, find it. We give the map, let me go back. We give the map test to satisfy our federal requirement. That's how we ensure our federal funding. Title I, Title II, Title IV, 
in the other federal requirement is that you have to you have to do the 17 tests across a, a child's career in public education, and we have to report our bottom 5%. You can do that with a one-day standardized test in each grade level, right? We can do that. It also is really interesting is that MAP test is not required by the feds for accreditation. We are one of only a handful of states that do accreditation the way we do. So I've asked, and this is going to date me, but when I first started teaching, we used accreditation agencies. Um, the one we were involved with in Hazelwood School District was North Central. And it was quite an extensive process to go through. You did have to do a self-evaluation, and then they did an evaluation, and then they came and talked to you about what you see and what they see, and they actually gave suggestions on improvement. Right now, you get a report card in the newspaper, and no one says, here's some suggestions on how to improve this or that or whatever it is that people assume school districts are not doing well in. I just would like to see us go back to the accredited agency. I believe it is rigorous. It would certainly be built on the standards that Missouri has already defined. I think it will be less costly, and I think I think everybody could get behind this. And before we go to break, I was just looking on the House website. You proposed something similar to this in 2023 and actually passed out of committee 15 to 1. Yes. So this is not something, even though you're a Democrat in a supermajority legislature, it some of those 15s were Republicans. Yeah. So so it seems like this is something that may have more momentum in 2024. I am hopeful. It has been a great bipartisan conversation. We worked together on this bill, my brainchild, but a lot of input from a lot of people who know some things way better than me, right? I am very hopeful. I, I have found a lot of interest. We just couldn't get it to the floor in time. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio. And we're back on Politically Speaking with our guest state representative, Paula Brown. Let's get back into it. And I want to talk about veto session, which is literally the day we're recording this a week away, which is wild. What was your reaction to Governor Mike Parson's vetoes of roughly $550 million worth of items from the 2024 fiscal year budget? Frankly, shocked. There's approximately $6 billion sitting there. It was a bipartisan budget, probably one of the best I've seen since coming into the legislature, I think everyone was shocked that he vetoed so much. Governor Parson has defended his move, saying it's necessary to keep the state's financial house in order. And here's what he said last week during a visit to Fort Zumwalt East High School. You know, we, we had a $53 billion budget. You can't continue to do that and expect to have the money you need to be able to just sustain what we have already started. So, you know, people's got to understand this is a much bigger picture than just one district or one Senate district. This is about the entire state. You know, we've been very fortunate. Our revenues are up in this state. You know, unemployment's the lowest. But you got to manage the money, just like any other business. And, you know, for me, it's about looking at the state budget five years from now, not just this year. Do you agree with the governor on this issue? Um, I, what I would say is... Let me back up. No, I don't agree with the governor. 
I would agree with the governor if he said you can't build raises or ongoing spending on some of this one-time money, right? Because you can't. But there are things that can be done right now with that money that would help every citizen in the, in the state of Missouri. That's what that money was about. The governor also talked about speculation that lawmakers may try to override his objections, which is available an available option during veto session. And here's what he said in St. Charles County. I, I don't think there'll be overrides in September. There may be somebody who will probably do that, maybe in the House, but I don't think the Senate's going to do that. And I think the other thing is, I think if people really analyze what happened in every district, whether it's a Senate district, House, everybody's got something in that, in the whole budget plan. Well, I would agree with the governor. I'm I think there might be something that tries to happen in the House, but I don't see the Senate having the appetite to override the governor's vetoes right now. You know, one of the other things that Parson mentioned in a lot of his vetoes was that the the, the legislature passed a uh, tax cut bill that eliminated taxes on Social Security and state pensions. And full disclosure, I'm a vested pensioner in the University of Missouri system, so this is not an issue that does not affect me. But do you think that that is a valid concern that, you know, there, there has to be consequences to actions when you end up cutting taxes? There are absolutely consequences to actions when you cut taxes. I'm not sure that I disagree with cutting those particular taxes that you said. I, too, for full disclosure, am a recipient of uh, the Missouri State Teacher Pension. However, it wasn't the only taxes cut, right? And so we are going to see, and I would love to be wrong on this, but I think we are going to see a loss of revenue, maybe not this year or even next, but eventually we'll see a loss of revenue because you cannot keep cutting and expect that the same money flow in and be able to pay for the things that we've paid for in Missouri. So in the past, when there have been successful efforts to cut the Social Security tax or, or the state pension tax, the argument from proponents say this will entice Missourians who are retired to stay in the state or incentivize people from other states to settle in Missouri in their retirement. Does that? Do you think that that has any... That, that argument has any validity. It does. Um, look at the states that people moved to. My parents were lifelong Missourians, and when they retired, they moved to Illinois because their pension, my mom's pension, wasn't taxed. Um, so, and she had, you know, a decent pension from Boeing, and so that was an absolute, it's an absolute factor of why people might move. Once the veto session ends, it will only be a few months before lawmakers return for the 2024 session. What are your expectations for how an election year legislative session will transpire? From experience from the last two cycles, what I would say is they'll be in full campaign mode. I think you'll see a lot of crazy things come back up, things that Missouri voters have already said we don't want. But I think you'll see some of those kind of campaign type situations come up on the floor both of the house and the senate what and what what would those issues be so i think the initiative petition process is going to be front and center again yeah we've talked a lot on this program about amending missouri's constitution and how republicans are bringing up that bid to make it 
more difficult to amend. Do you think there could be some hesitation to pursue that now after Ohio voters rejected a, a similar proposal? Nope. <laughs> I think they're going to put it in overdrive and head full steam ahead. Now, on the last day of session, House Speaker Dean Plocker linked efforts to make the Constitution harder to amend with likely efforts to try to legalize abortion in Missouri. And some Democrats were like, wow, he's saying the quiet part loud because that had been an assumption. Um, But that was a linkage in Ohio for sure. Do you see the two issues as linked? Absolutely. And explain why. Well, if we maintain where we are right now with a 50 percent plus one, it is going to make it much easier to make uh, women's health care issues, put, get it on the ballot, and with the likelihood of it passing. So that's just, I think it's a simple connection that he's made because we have people, who, Missouri is unique. We are a red state, but when it comes to some social issues, we vote blue. It's very, very odd to me as I watch some initiative petitions go through. So let's, 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 let's kind of segue into the election. Um, we don't know what the abortion legalization measure is going to look like. There's there's one group that's put forth 11 initiatives, and they're very different. We just had another group come out that wants to really focus on exceptions like rape, incest, life of the mother, but also possibly a 12-week window. Um, I'm just curious. Like I know this is a difficult question to ask because we're being speculative, But do you think that there is a specific proposal that you think would gain 50 plus 1 percent to go away from the status quo right now, which is no abortions at all except for, quote unquote, medical emergencies? I don't really know that I can answer that question, to be perfectly honest. Have you read through all of the language? I've read through some of them, but not all of them. The, The writing of them? is confusing in most situations. And most, when you look at ballot initiatives, one of the, as the election gets closer, the number one call I'm going to get is, can you explain Prop A, Prop B, uh, or whatever the, the situation, whatever they're calling it. So I'm concerned that we're going to have a lot of trouble with how the language reads and how confusing it might be. I don't know that I have a good feeling about what if one could pass over another. I think that the other issue, especially with the the we're, we're going to put it in the two categories. There's one group that has 11, and there's a new group that has six. The group that has 11 has been ensnared in what I can only describe as legal hell for the last few months. First, like the fiscal note situation w- between Scott Fitzpatrick and Andrew Bailey took up a lot of time. That there's another lawsuit over that from two of your colleagues. Uh, Mary Elizabeth Coleman and Hannah Kelly, and the group is suing over the ballot summary from Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft. And I don't know if this new group is going to face a similar legal thicket, but it's not out of the question. I guess that brings up the, the more important question. Do you think there will be enough time to gather signatures if they have to, to get through this legal gauntlet? No, they will not have enough time. I was listening to a program, I can't remember which one, that was talking about the fact that we're going to, even if we can get it done, say, by by the end of the year, I don't see it. Signature gathering is 
an immense project, right? You have to have it from all over. You have to have enough. You have to have them verified. So I don't, I don't know that there will be enough time to gather signatures. I would hope that there would be, but I don't know that. I don't see that happening. An intriguing thing for me is to watch. We have a fully Republican-led state-level positions, right? Statewide offices, yeah. Yeah, and they, they're fighting amongst themselves. So I'm like, okay, we, they, don't, they don't agree. The Democrats certainly don't agree with most of what's happening. There are Republicans that are like, what are we doing? So I am, this situation could get nervous. And if we pass uh, some kind of initiative petition, I don't know what kind of extra ringer that s- throws into the mess. Yeah, the the whole legal funhouse mirror about what happens if a a effort to make the Constitution more difficult to amend passes in August and how that would affect a November abortion initiative is so uh, head headache inducing that I think we're going to move on to another race, Sarah. I think we are. And we're going to talk about the governor's race. What do you think about House Minority Leader Crystal Quaid running for governor? Well, I'm really excited that she's running for governor. Our top Democrat uh, leader in the House. She's smart. She's thoughtful. She's purposeful. And she lives in Springfield, right? So she's used to a 50-50-ish type situation. Um, she knows what outstate voters want. She actually talks to voters and gets their opinion. And she has made some decisions that, while maybe not her personal belief um, certainly fit what Missourians have asked for. I'm pretty excited. So do you think that do you think that any of the three GOP candidates, uh, Lieutenant Governor Mike Kehoe, Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft and State Senator Bill Eigel, they're all running for that post. Do you think any of them would be easier to defeat than others? And if so, why? I don't know that I think any of them would be easier to beat, except maybe Bill Eigel. He does not have the name recognition that both uh, Lieutenant Governor Kehoe and Ashcroft have. So I think he might, should he win, I think she would really benefit from that. So interestingly, um, the Republicans have primaries in like every statewide office. Um, but the one that the Democrats have a primary in is the U.S. Senate race, where you have Lucas Kuntz, Carla May, and uh, Wesley Bell running to face off against Josh Hawley. First of all, before I ask you, have you endorsed anybody in that race? I have not. I have us. I typically don't endorse in primaries. Uh, I want to help whoever is the candidate, and I will do that wholeheartedly. But endorsing in a three-way primary is, it's just not conducive, I believe, for exiting representative. Okay. I'm glad that we just wanted to get that out of the way. Do you think that it is a good thing that there is a primary in this in this race, given that whatever you think of Josh Hawley, and I know a lot of Democrats hate him for a lot of reasons, um, he did defeat Claire McCaskill, and he will be a challenging opponent to beat. So do you think it is a good thing or a bad thing that there's a primary here? Primaries always make concern me because we spend so much money in primaries. And if you look out at 
constituents these days, they're less and less likely to contribute to campaigns because they're frustrated with us. And who blames them, right? As a body, we haven't done all the things that we should do for the average citizen. So it might be good policy-wise so that voters can pick the best person that they think could defeat Josh Hawley, but um, paying for a campaign, as you know, is wicked expensive, and that's a lot of dollars spent. Now, before we let you go, (laughs) um, I do want to talk about the state legislature, since that is where you are right now, Um, and you are going to be running for another term. How do you think House Democrats are going to fare I know it's really early. I know there's a lot of things that could affect things, but the House Democrats did really well in 2022. And I think that there's an expectation that they may be able to inch their way back up to having more people. What's kind of your thoughts at this very early juncture? Uh, Hopeful. So we had five candidates last year get within 500 votes. One candidate got it within 49 votes. So... I am anticipating and hopeful that we will gain at least another four seats. That That is my hope. That's what I think if we get concentrated, not to say that not every candidate is important, but we don't have candidates running in every seat, right? So really focus on the ones that we can um, win because I think there are four or five out there that we can take back. Um, we need to inch closer to just breaking the supermajority. That, so that requires us to work together more. And that's what the citizens of Missouri want. They're sick of all the bickering. They are sick of hearing it. And I hear I get that phone call or that text or all the time. Um, they want us to just go do our jobs and keep Missourians in the forefront. So if we could take a few seats back and break a supermajority, I think we could get to some place that Missourians might be less frustrated. That's all the time we have. Thank you so much, Representative Brown, for joining us on the show. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can follow all of our coverage at stlpr.org. And Representative Brown, you're a wonderful first-time guest. Uh, We're happy to have you. It was awesome. Where can people find you on the internet where you want to be found? Um, You can find me on my Facebook page, Committee to Elect Paula Brown. Um, I also, if you look on that page, you can find my cell phone number and all my connections. You can also find me at paula.brown at house.mo.gov. And I will, I am pretty good about getting back with you within 48 hours. Thank you so much. And until next time, so long.